if you'll turn with your Bibles to James, book of James, chapter 1. James chapter 1, and I'll read verses 19 through 27. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Well, this morning we're going to focus particularly on the tongue, on speech, uh, and I'll never forget, for me, uh, one of those horrific high school moments. Uh, to my teachers, you know, I was, you know, good, nice young man, clean cut, respectable in class, as long as the teacher wasn't there. Okay, my friends knew who I was. But teachers thought I was nice. And there was one particular teacher, Mrs. Mackey. And sweet lady. She was the kind of teacher, you know, that, that made you want to work hard. She's the kind of teacher that made you want to be like a people pleaser. She made you want to, to please her. You wanted her commendation. And she liked me, and I was a good boy. And she made me a special helper at school, like a counselor. She, she'd ask me if, if uh, people had problems, if they could come talk to me. And I was like, yeah, sure, you know, I was... No, he's a good boy. And anyways, one day, we're in class, and she's really late. And p- people are getting riled up, you know. We got this one guy in class. I could tell you stories about him. His name was Seth Callis. He was, he was something else. But he starts instigating all these things, and people were getting all riled up and all commotion. And we were shouting things and saying things. And I was, I was turned around on my desk to the door, to have my back to the door. And she walks in, and everyone sees her. And as soon as she walks in, everyone's quiet. As soon as that happens, I shouted out this loud obscenity, really loud. And it was dead quiet. And I turned around, and she's standing right at the door. And she looked at me with this, this gaze, like, pierced into my soul. And I, you know that feeling? You, get, you start sweating. And you, you feel like a worm, and you want to crawl under your desk. And I was so ashamed. She looked at me. And then she looked away. She went to her desk. And she just went through roll. She didn't say anything. I was completely ashamed. I was ashamed by my actions. I was ashamed by my words. And the reality is, I'm still ashamed when I think about that incident. But back then, I wasn't, I wasn't ashamed because of what came out of my mouth. I was ashamed because I got caught. I was ashamed because this lady who had a false respect, a high view of me, she found out, what I really was. 
You know, but today, I'm not ashamed of what Miss Mackey heard out of my mouth. As much as I'm ashamed of what I heard come out of my heart. Because what we're going to learn this morning is, what comes out of our mouth is what's in our heart. What words you come off, what words roll off of your tongue, is a gauge and it shows us what is in our heart. So I ask you this morning, how about you, what, what things are you ashamed of that you've said? What memories can you look back, maybe in high school or college, or maybe last month, maybe last week, maybe yesterday, maybe this morning? What things are rolling off of your tongue and coming out of your heart? How often do you find your tongue to be in conflict with what the Scripture says should come out of your mouth? So this morning we're going to look at the gospel, the tongue, and the human heart. Before we get to verse 26, though, our text this morning, I'm going to set some context. We study this book as we study this verse this morning. Remind you this morning that the book of James is not written for everyone. Not written for everyone in the world. But it's written for believers. It's not written for pagans, heathens, for Muslims, for Mormons, any other religion. But James is writing specifically to to New Testament Christians, to New Testament believers, to believers who have accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ. On May 27th, uh, I preached verses 22 through 25. I don't expect you to remember all that. But we studied in that text two kinds of people, two kinds of, two kinds of Christians in that text we saw. On the one hand, there's the person who's a professing believer. They know the gospel. They know church lingo. They look as if they are a true believer. But verse 22 described for us a believer who is deluded. They're deluded into thinking that they're saved. Okay. Verse 21 says that uh, you need to receive the word implanted which is able to save the soul. But this one kind of person, he's sitting in the audience. He's, he's coming to church on Sundays. He hears the Word. And the Word lands on the surface of his heart. But it hasn't bore down into the soil of his heart. Therefore, that, that seed has not been implanted and it's not brought forth the fruit. What the fruit? It's fruit of salvation. The seed is on the surface. It's dying. It's dead. And his heart, likewise, is dead. James says this person in verse 23, he's deluded. He's deluded. They hear the word, but they do not do the word. And to boil this down quickly, James explains how someone can think they're a believer and be so deceived when in reality they're a pagan in the pew. And verse 25 taught us that until a person is undone by the gospel, they will not be a doer of the word. Many people do works, they do all sorts of religious things, they pray, sing, serve. But verse 25 tells us that there is a difference between doing and effectual doing. Look again at verse 25. This is for the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer. This man will be blessed in what he does. There's a difference between doing and effectual doing. Going to church, serving, praying, ministering, singing songs. 
Everybody can do that. Anybody can do that. But the question is, is it effectual before God? Is it profitable before God? Is it truly pleasing to the heart of God? James unfolded to us that the law of liberty in verse 25 is what makes our doing effectual. See, we studied how the Old Testament law condemns and shuts up all men under sin and shows all men that they are helpless to obey God. Galatians 3, 22-24 says, But the Scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. So we looked at how the law condemns us and helps us see our desperate need for a Savior and points us to Christ. And James 1.25 tells us that the law is now, it's complete. It's the teleos, teleon. It's the complete law. It's the law of liberty. Rather than binding, rather than keeping under suppression, rather than keeping us unable to do anything, the law now becomes liberty for us because Christ fulfilled the law. He became a curse. He ends the law. He's the end of the law for righteousness. So the law of liberty is the truth that Christ paid for our sin on the cross so that we may be free from condemnation before a holy God and considered righteous before God because of the work of Christ paying for our sin. Debtor to mercy. That's the gospel. The, the condemning law now becomes the law of liberty, becomes a law of freedom. So faith in Jesus Christ is agreeing with God that we are sinners under God's righteous judgment, but the perfect man Christ paid for our sins so we can be righteous before God. It is this foundation of truth. It is this foundation of truth received, believed on, received in the soul that enables dead sinners to become effectual doers. It is belief in the Gospel that Christ fulfills the law that allows us to now, likewise, obey the law and to be found pleasing in the sight of God, to do works that are pleasing in the sight of God. So again, the Christian life, the Gospel life, it is all responsive. It's reactive. It's never proactive. The Gospel is proactive. Christ did it all. Our faith is reactive. We believe in what Christ has done. And in response to the Gospel, we become effectual doers. Unless you see what God has done for you, you have nothing to do for God. Okay? The Scriptures are, are chock full of this, this kind of thinking, this kind of truth, this reality. For example, take the book of Romans. Right? Book of Romans, 16 chapters, right? 16 chapters... The first 11 chapters, for 11 chapters, all Paul does is expound on what God has done for God. And in in that, in justifying His righteousness through the cross, he tells us what God has done for us. Paul doesn't tell you and I what to do. For 11 chapters, he doesn't say what you and I are to do. He only tells you and I what God has done. It's not until chapter 12 after he spent 11 chapters unfolding the gospel, that he then says, Therefore, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies. So 11 chapters of what God has done for us, 
finally brings him to the point where he can say, now this is what you do in response to what God has done for us. How about Ephesians? Book of Ephesians, nicely divided into two sections. We learned the book is divided up as chapters 1 through 3 as the Christian position and chapters 4 through 6 as the Christian practice. Okay? Those are good headings for those breakups. But chapters 1 through 3, if you read, go home this afternoon and read chapters 1 through 3, every single verb in chapters 1 through 3 is all indicative. It's all telling us, it's all describing to us what God has done with the gospel for his glory, for our good. There are no imperatives in chapters 1 through 3. There are no commands. There are no exhortations to you and I as to what to do except just listen and soak in the magnitude and the mercy of the cross. So our hearts are left undone in chapters 1 through 3. We say, I'm a debtor to mercy. There's no imperatives. They're all indicatives. And my response is just to praise God and thank Him for His mercy. I... I lied except for, for one thing. There's one imperative in chapters 1 through 3, and it's in 2.11, and Paul says, remember. Remember. Remember what you formerly were, and remember now what God has made you into. 1 through 3, all indicatives, and not until Paul unfolds and expounds on the gospel does he therefore, beginning in chapter 4, tell us how to live our lives. That is the supreme Christian understanding of the gospel. Until we understand the indicatives, we cannot obey an imperative. Until you understand what God has done for you in the gospel, you cannot do anything for God. That's why Catholicism is upside down. It tells you what you have to do before it tells you what God has done for you. That's why every other religion is works. Every other religion is imperative, imperative, imperative. You must do this. You must do this. You must do this. And then God will be happy with you. But the gospel is, God has done this. God has done this. God has done this. Remember, listen, consider. And then when you understand the gospel, and when you've received the word into your soul, be a doer of the word. The divine enablement. The gospel received empowers you and I to live the law of liberty, to live lives pleasing to God. It's the gospel giving God all the glory for what God has done, and sinners become debtors to mercy. Now this brings us to our text this morning in verse 26. Verses 26 and 27 could be entitled, Effectual Doing in Word and Deed. As verse 26, what he does here now, he begins, having understood the gospel, to show us how to be effectual in word. Talk about our speech. And then in verse 27, he moves on to effectual doing in deed. In light of the gospel, live out the gospel. This is the gospel life. But this morning we concern ourselves with effectual doing in word and deed. Verse 26, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Easiest way for me to explain the overall purpose of verse 26 is to say that this verse looks at the symptoms to diagnose the disease. Verse 26 diagnoses a disease that, like most diseases, has symptoms. And James addresses again the following people. If anyone thinks himself to be religious. Hey, 
Would you raise your hand this morning if you think of yourself to be religious? Come on. Pastor James, Jason, only religious guys here. Man, we've got some problems. Okay? Okay, everyone, I'm assuming you're going to raise your hand, right? Because why? What we're here because we're religious people. We believe and we believe the divine things of God. We believe the Bible. And we come here because we're religious people to worship God. And so this text is written to you. This text is written to me. To us who consider ourselves to be religious. The word thinks here in our text describes a habitual state of thinking. This again is not a one-time thought, but the person we're about to see is one whose thinking is consistent. He constantly thinks himself as a Christian. He consistently thinks of himself as being a religious person. And note that the word religious, it's an adjective. It's descriptive of what kind of person this believer thinks they are. The word religious here is a very rare rare New Testament word. It denotes the zealous and diligent performance of the outward and ceremonial aspects of worship. So by religion, we're talking about the outward zeal. I also want to focus for a moment here on this idea of this person thinking themselves, thinking themselves to be religious. To clarify another way, this man is making a judgment about himself. He's making a judgment about himself. He judges himself to be a truly religious person. He he believes that God is pleased with him. And he comes to this conclusion by judging himself on what he does in the realm of his religion. He looks at his religious duties and has judged himself pleasing to God. So again, this word thinks tells us that this man's thinking is constantly habitually, perpetually considering himself before God as a person that is pleasing to God. He's religious before God. Now, is there something wrong with constantly thinking of yourself to be religious and pleasing to God? I think the answer is no. There's nothing wrong with thinking that you're religious and pleasing to God. The question is, what is your standard to consider yourself pleasing to God. What is our appraisal system that we walk through, plug in some religious specs, and come out and says, pleasing to God? What's the standard? What's the holy calculator, if you will? The answer, again, is verse 25. We are found to be pleasing in God's sight if we have been cleansed by the blood of Christ, if we have been freed by the law of liberty, and so we pound this into our minds, the phrase that we must be undone, we must be undone by the gospel before we can do. You must be undone by the gospel before you can be a doer of the word. But this forces us to ask perhaps a more preeminent question, and that is, how do you know? How do you know if you've been undone by the gospel? How do you know if that seed is not on the surface? How do you know if that seed has bore down into your heart and is bearing fruit for salvation? See, you, can, you and I, we cannot look into the heart. We cannot gaze into the soul to see if that seed has been received, to see if that seed has been implanted. So what's our system? What's our appraisal? 
The first part of this answer is whether you truly understand the gospel. Going back over what we've already gone over. If you have correctly understood the indicatives, if you have understood the gospel and your helplessness before God and the reality of the cross of Christ as a propitiatory sacrifice, if you believe that, at this point you're passing the test. But it doesn't end there. Verse 26 gives us a test which examines more than the correctness of our beliefs, but helps us determine if such belief is effectual. Effectual in word. Verse 26 unfolds to us a person who truly believes they have been undone by the gospel, but the reality of their tongue declares they are deceived in their heart. The phrase, uh, does not bridle his tongue. He does not bridle his tongue. The word bridle, it's a verb here. Uh, It means to control, to have the reins on. Uh, Just in case you don't know what a bridle is, Bridle is the headgear you put on a horse, and it includes the bit and the reins, and all that is so that you can steer the horse, you can direct the horse, and get him to go where you want him to go. Okay? That's how you control. Unless you're Gandalf, and you just whisper into the horse's ear, and he just goes there, you've got to put on the bit, you've got to put on the bridle, and you've got to steer the horse. Well, James is saying that's the same thing with our tongue. You have this tongue, and it's a a wild stallion, if you will, and it must be brought under control. It must be brought under submission. It must be steered. But how can it be steered? We're going to see how impossible it is to control the tongue without the gospel. Why, might we ask, of all appendages, does James focus on the tongue? I believe the answer is because the Scriptures tell us that the tongue, perhaps more than any other body part, reveals the true state of our hearts. The tongue, more than any other body appendage, has the means to reveal, to expose, and to unfold what is in the heart. But let's state the obvious here. It's not the tongue that's the culprit. It's not really this tongue. It's us. The tongue is inextricably linked to the heart so that what the tongue brings forth reveals what is truly in the heart and mind of a person. And that's the whole point. The tongue is merely the tool which scoops out what's in our hearts and mind and conveys it to the surface. Picture one of those conveyor belts that go deep in the mines. Those men are down deep in the earth and they're scooping, they're throwing that stuff on that that conveyor belt and it brings it to the surface of the earth. What's coming out of your soul? When your tongue scoops out what is in your heart, is it bringing forth gold and silver or is it bringing forth dirt? Is it bringing forth good words? Is it bringing forth Christ-exalting speech? Or is it bringing forth Belittling words, bitterness. The list could go on. The scriptures reference the tongue to numerous moral issues. Listen to some. I'm just going to pull out these snippets, direct quotes from scripture in regards to the tongue. The viper's tongue slays him. They flatter with their tongue. His tongue is mischief and wickedness. Keep your tongue from evil. Your tongue devises destruction. 
You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. Their tongue a sharp sword. The smooth tongue of the adulteress. The perverted tongue will be cut out. A lying tongue hates those it crushes. Contrasting immorality of the tongue, we have the righteousness of the tongue. My tongue will joyfully sing. Let my tongue sing of your word. Our tongue with a joyful shouting. The tongue of the righteous. The tongue of the wise brings healing. A soothing tongue is a tree of life. And so you'll notice from all these scriptures that these, these, these authors, they personify the tongue. They make the tongue, if you were, as if it were a person. As if it was this physical large tongue with, with arms and with legs running around either with a sword to destroy or with some bomb to heal. But the point is to personify the tongue and show its incredible usefulness in carrying out the desires of man, both good and ill. The tongue is a tool. It is a weapon. It is not the weapon that poses a threat. It is the one who wields it, though. You understand that? The tongue is a weapon, but it's not the weapon that's dangerous. It's the tongue. I'm from Spokane. I, I mention that most every time I come up here. I'm from Spokane, Washington. Okay, And where I'm from, it's normal to drive around and see large, muddy Fords with gun racks in the back of the window. Oftentimes, there's a shotgun in the back. And sometimes, you'll see, along with this big, muddy Ford with a gun rack and the gun, a bumper sticker that says, Guns don't kill people. I do. Right? <laughs> it's the same thing right here. Okay? It's not the tongue. It's us. We kill people. We use the tongue. I wish that I could take back so many of the things that I've said with my tongue. I wish I could tell my wife that I didn't really say what I just said. I wish I didn't really just take out that sword and try to chop off your head. But I can't blame it on my tongue. I want to. I wish I could. But it's not my tongue. It's me. The truth is the tongue is merely the physical extension of our hearts, of your heart, of your mind. Christ said in Matthew 12:34 that the mouth speaks out that which fills the heart. Here is the true meaning of what James is getting at. The key here is to understand that out of the mouth comes that which fills the heart. The issue is not really this little red piece of flesh stuck in our throat. The issue is that the tongue is the conveyor belt of the heart and mind, and it scoops out what's in the heart and brings it to the surface. So, the point of verse 26 Understand this. The point of verse 26 is not to give a specific test of words and sentences that are to come out of your mouth and then you'll be a believer. The call is to examine your words and see if it matches up to the heart of a believer, if it matches up to one who has received the word implanted, if this is now imperatives having understood the indicatives. The call is to examine your words in order to examine your heart. Is your tongue a Christian tongue? Is your tongue a Christian tongue? Is your tongue an instrument in the Redeemer's hands? Is your tongue a sword for the Lord? Or is it a knife for the devil? There are some people who think they have been undone by the gospel. 
They think they have been redeemed and transformed, but their tongue keeps scooping out rubbish. Verse 26 says, such a person is deceived. Verse 22 talked about this deluded man. What makes a man, again, what makes a man deluded is that he believes in the core of his being that something is true when it is actually false. And verse 26 says it again. There are people who vigorously believe they are born again and saved, but there is little evidence of grace in their life. Go to church, sing praises, share the gospel, but when their life is not in direct contact with the church or Christians, what's really in their heart comes out. James says such people's religion is worthless. The word worthless means empty, vain, nothing. It emphasizes that all this person's doing is ineffectual. Oh, we need to move on here. At this point, right, there's two applications. The first is if you're an unbeliever and, you're, and you realize your tongue shows the gospel is not rooted in your heart. You're an unbeliever because what your tongue reveals is that you have no control. You have no bridle. You're unable to control the tongue. And you're unable to have self-control until you have gospel control, until you receive the gospel. Now, every single one of us, if we just left the text there, would have to come to the conclusion that we're unbelievers. Because every single one of us speaks evil with his tongue. In fact, If that's the case, even if right now we repented, we're going to go home later and we're going to bring forth evil again. And we're going to have to wonder, am I a believer? Every time you sin with your tongue, are you a believer? So we must conclude that that James is speaking generally, but not absolutely. He must not be saying any time something unwholesome or unkind comes out of your mouth, you've got to wonder if you're really saved. That's not what he's getting at. What he is getting at is, every believer has problems with his tongue. Why? Because every believer has problems with his heart. He has problems with his heart. So let me clarify more on how you know if you've been undone by the gospel and taken us down a different path and how this works. Getting saved, okay? I'm going to make up my own lingo here. Getting saved means you've been undone by the gospel, okay? But that doesn't mean that you get undone once. Getting undone, that's my own lingo for being saved. Right? You get saved, and then you, you bring forth righteousness from your heart with your tongue. But that doesn't mean that you get undone once. So let me explain. I see it as that there are two types of being undone. And there is, I'll lump it together as justification, positional sanctification, regeneration. Okay? And then, that's getting saved. You get saved, and you get undone by the gospel. But then there is simply the the practical sanctification, the the daily sanctification. The progressive sanctification of being undone by the gospel. Progressive sanctification is simply that though you are positionally holy and righteous before God, practically there is a lot of sanctifying work to do. So you're considered holy before God, positionally, but practically until you and I die, God will be slowly using all of life and its circumstances to make us holy for His glory. This is the second meaning of being undone by the Gospel. Progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification is generally the road to being made holy, 
but more specifically, it's the power of the gospel undoing you day by day and remaking you into the likeness of Christ. Well, this is what I mean when I say positional sanctification. Puts the gospel on the peripheral of your life. When you get saved, we talked about this last time, when you get saved, you believe the gospel. But in essence, practically what's, what's happened as a new believer is the gospel has simply come on the peripherals of your life. It's just the cross of Christ has, has just come on the scene of your life. You've just begun to understand the very basics and the very basis of the gospel. The very simple parts of the gospel you must know in order to get saved. And you believe that, and the gospel comes on the scene of your life. But the believer's life can be likened to the sunrise. The unbeliever lives in perpetual darkness, without a sun, without a morning, without noon. But getting saved is like a sunrise. You believe the gospel and the sun begins to rise. For the young believer, the sun is just at the horizon. Everything is viewed. Everything's in view. The sky, the mountains, the trees, and the grass. You only need a little bit of sunlight to see that. You guys understand what I'm talking about. You, when you've watched the sun rise, and as soon as the sun, the light is there. You don't see the sun, but you see the light coming out. And you can see things starting to come out of the scenery. That's the gospel coming into your life. You start to see things as they really are. But you, but you can't see the fullness of the sun yet. But what happens? Sanctification. The cross becoming peripheral to your life. The sun rises slowly from behind the mountains. And as it rises higher and higher, it gets lighter and lighter. You can see more and more clearly until the sun begins to rise and it comes out from behind the mountains and it rises up into the sky, higher and higher. And so what you see is this blazing sun in the center of your view. And you can see this massive sun. And because the sun is so high and so exalted, you can see everything else around you perfectly. That's what the gospel does. It rises in your hearts. You understand more and more your debt to mercy. You understand more and more the cross of Christ. And it moves from this perspective of your eye, where you can kind of see the cross over here. But as you grow in maturity, the cross comes to the very center of your life. And it's right here in front of your face. And everything else is out here. And everything else is illumined and pictured and understood and seen through the cross of Christ. So for the Christian, it's not just getting undone, it's not just getting sanctified one time, but it's daily growing and understanding of the cross of Christ. And this is the means of growing in our speech. Because as our heart is undone more with, with the magnitude of the cross, we want to live and please Christ more. And this understanding of the gospel, this obeying, the gospel, this applying the gospel to the believer's life allows him daily to grow in the control of his own tongue. So sanctification is daily being undone by the gospel. This is why we will say that the gospel is not for the unbeliever, nor is it for the new believer, but the gospel being emblazoned upon the Christian life is what it means to be a believer. The gospel is for believers. Now, let me clarify what I mean here. Jesus, Paul said, 1 Timothy 1, 
It is a trustworthy statement that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. So the gospel is for unbelievers in the sense that we offer it to them. We herald the gospel. We preach the gospel. We proclaim the gospel. But until they accept the gospel, it's not theirs. The gospel is ours. The gospel is believers. The gospel is for the believer. When you, as an unbeliever, accept the gospel, it becomes your gospel as now a believer. So the gospel is for believers. And the more the gospel becomes central, the more the sun rises, the more Christian you become. You understand what I'm saying? The more Christian you become, in a sense, the more you live out the Christian life. The more you absorb the gospel, the more you believe the cross, and the more you apply it to your life, that's what sanctification is. I want to digress for a minute. I'm not going to turn there. Second Peter, he goes through <clears throat> verses 1-4, through four, talks about the gospel, talks about all that God has done, all indicatives. And then in verse 5, he starts giving the imperatives. And he gives this list, you know, as your faith, moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness. And I believe that as he's teaching those things, he's, he's adding one on top of the other. Because before you have faith, you can't have moral excellence. And then when you have more, understand moral excellence, you can apply knowledge. And then when you have knowledge, you can add self-control. And then self-control, if you keep adding self-control, what's that? It results in perseverance. And if you continue to persevere, what you get is godliness. So take, for example, two believers. Two believers, they've been believers for 30 years. Both of them equally know the Bible. And yet, one of them, you would look at and say, you know, he's a godly man. And the other, you would look at and say, you know, he's a believer, but he's not, there's something missing. You know, what is it? And all it is, is simply, it's the application of scriptural truth to their life. What makes a person godly is that they know how to apply the gospel to their life. So it's not just enough to supply to your faith, moral excellence, and then knowledge. But to that knowledge, you must apply self-control. You must practice that knowledge. But if you just practice that knowledge once or twice, that doesn't do anything. So you keep practicing that knowledge. You keep practicing self-control. That's perseverance. And that perseverance brings the fruit of godliness. So by God's grace... Cornerstone, as you hear the gospel being preached, as you learn to apply the gospel, not just hear the gospel, but apply truth to your life, then persevering in that, you will be godly. All that to say that sanctification is that gospel being applied to your life, coming central to your life, moving from peripherals to the center of your life. So the gospel is for the believer. And so my prayer is that that's what would happen in our lives. And James says, as that happens, you will control your tongue. This tongue that scoops out wickedness will begin to scoop out what's in our hearts. But verse 26, though, makes us ask the question, but how am I doing with the gospel? How am I doing with the gospel? How are you doing with the gospel? How are we doing with the gospel? This is where the tongue comes in. The tongue is the flashlight to the soul. The tongue turns on the faucet of your heart, and what is in your heart, it gushes right out. 
The gauge at this point is that the tongue tells us where Christ is at. By evaluating your speech, you can in some ways determine if the gospel is first even, even on the horizon. But then, if it is, is it moving central? Is there light in your world? Is there gospel grace? Is there any undoing in your life? Is there any true religion? If so, by the grace of God, your tongue will become more and more holy, more edifying, more Christ-exalting. Why? Because the cross is moving to the center of your life. So is your speech, is your speech Christ-centered, gospel-centered, gospel-empowered? Is that your speech? Is that my speech? Turn to Colossians 3.16. Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, CBF knows... I preached this, a sermon from this text twice. I preached it last year when we were going through Colossians, and I'll, I preached it as the Word of Christ as the Scripture. I said, yeah, let the Scripture, you know, we talked about the Scripture, the authority of God's Word, the sufficiency of Scripture. Let Scripture be in you. Memorize Scripture. Speak Scripture. Pray Scripture. Scripture this, Scripture that, right? Okay, it's right, it's right. But it's not fully right. Because he doesn't just say, let the Word, let the Word dwell in you. He says, let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. And what he's saying is, let the Gospel, let the Gospel dwell in you. Dwell, house, oikos, be in you. Plural, in the congregation. Let the Gospel be at the center of your conversations. Let, the, let Gospel grace be what flows out of your speech or, or even more, let your speech be the result of gospel grace. That's why he says, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns. Wisdom, teaching and admonishing. That is, the believer who understands the gospel and who knows how to apply the gospel to his own life is therefore able to instruct and to admonish and to exhort. That is, to help others apply the gospel to their lives. So Paul's saying, let this gospel dwell in the church. It's not enough just to have law. It's not enough just to have imperatives. But you've got to know how to use the indicatives. You've got to know how to share and encourage and remind sinners of what God has done for you through the cross. And when you understand that, and when that message dwells in you, and when the cross moves from peripheral to central, then you can help other sinners. Then you can encourage other church members with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, all this overflowing because of the power of the gospel dwelling in the heart, dwelling in the heart of the church. When the gospel is center, Christ will exude from your spiritual pores. When the Son of God is rising in your hearts, the natural overflow will be an ability to minister the gospel to others It'll be an ability to bridle the tongue and turn it to where you want it to go so that instead of being a, having a knife for the devil, you have a sword for the Lord. You have, an intricate, you have an intricate scalpel where you can apply the gospel to your own heart and to others, being a minister of the gospel. We close just asking a few evaluative questions. Simple. Just going to rattle off a bunch of questions. What kind of tongue do you have at the workplace? Okay. What kind of tongue do you have at the workplace? Or if you're in elementary school, 
I don't know if there's any elementary kids tonight. If you're in junior high school, if you're in high school, if you're in college, if you're at the workplace, what kind of tongue do you have? What is coming out of your mouth? Are you one who has a religious tongue just for some occasions? Or do you have a religious tongue in all occasions? Right? No sacred, no secular tongue. But the Christian tongue is a gospel tongue. Now this doesn't mean that everything you're saying is about Jesus or about the cross. But it means that everything you're speaking is tainted by the cross. Empowered, enabled by the cross. How is your tongue? What is your conversation around the, the water, around the coffee? Right. What kind of things do you talk about? You're speaking about on break? How is your tongue at home? How is your tongue at home? Not only what your tongue says, but how it says it. Do you talk the same way at home that you do at church? Is there a drastic change between what comes out of your mouth at church versus what comes out of your mouth at home? And again, not merely just what comes out of your mouth, but how the what comes out of your mouth. In other words, after church, and I give you permission, I give you permission to go to my wife and ask her if I'm consistent with my tongue. Okay? Now, I'll defend myself this way and say her answer is going to be not perfectly, okay? because I sin. But ask her. You ask my wife, How, what's, what's your husband's tongue like? Is he consistent? Does he just act like a pastor on Sundays and then is he, is he different at home? How is your tongue? What if I asked your wife? What if I asked your spouse? What if we asked this to one another? Is there a dichotomy with our tongue? If there is, it's because there's a dichotomy in our hearts. Nice speech at flock, but no bridle at home. Again, I'm not talking about the occasional argument, right? If that's it, I'm disqualified. I'm not talking about the, the occasional ungracious word. If it's that, I'm disqualified. But habit, character. What is the state of your heart? Husbands and wives, does your tongue encourage or discourage? Does it provoke or does it praise? Finally, if, if your evaluation or if the evaluation that you receive from someone else leaves you dismayed, then I'll remind you that this is what the gospel is for. I'll probably never, I will never, I will never forget our first year of marriage. And I will never be able to forget some of the things in that first year that I said to my wife. But you know what? God uses that, I don't want to use the word guilt, because I don't need to be guilty, but God uses that shame to remind me of the infinite power of the gospel. And God uses that first year of marriage of all those sinful things I said to help me see that by God's grace, the gospel is coming from the peripherals to the center of my life. If I look back on the last three years, okay, and I, if I gave thanks to God for the greatest thing I see Him doing in my life, this is for me personally, what I thank God for the most is that I see, by His grace, the sun rising in my life. 
I can see by His grace the gospel moving from the peripherals to the center. And because of that, by God's grace, I believe my wife could say, my husband's tongue is changing. Am I impatient with the kids? Yeah. Do I speak at times ungraciously with my wife? I'd be a liar if I said I didn't. But not because of me, but because of the gospel. That's changing. And that will change for all of us. So put your hope in the gospel. Love the gospel. Read the gospels. Read Ephesians 1 through 3, Romans 1 through 11, and be mindful of all that God has done for you so that now you can live a life undone for Him. We pray. Father, we confess to you this morning that we are a people of unclean lips and we dwell amongst. Many peoples of unclean lips. Many peoples, Lord, of of unclean speech. Father, we ask that you would bring the gospel to the peripherals, to the center of our life, Lord. And as you do so, that you would transform us, transform us, change what comes out of our hearts, which is scooped out through this tongue. Lord, we we long that both righteousness and holiness and encouragement and admonishment, songs, hymns and spiritual songs would all come out of our tongues. There would be no sweet water one moment and bitter water the next. But Lord, as we Master the gospel. Lord, as the gospel masters us, that, Lord, we would therefore have tongues that speak forth praises to you and encouragements to men. Well, Lord, thank you for this book. Thank you for James. Thank you, Lord, for how you're bringing the gospel. I see you doing this in my life. Lord, I know you're doing this in James's life and the other leaders' lives. Lord, I believe that you're doing this in the life of our church. That, Lord, you're taking the gospel and you're bringing it central. And we expect greater and greater things. We expect more joy. We expect more godliness. We expect more genuine zeal. We expect more compassion for the lost, more brokenness toward lost sinners. We expect more ability in all of us to, to biblically counsel each other as we comprehend the indicatives of the gospel. Lord, thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you so much for your grace to us this morning and for your word which builds up the church for your glory and for your namesake, for your renown. In your name we pray. Amen.